You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. Here we are back again for another episode of the Together in Literacy podcast. Hi, Casey. Hi, everybody. We're excited. We have a wonderful interview today. Hear more of that in a minute. But first, we are hearing from one of our amazing listeners. And this person is RJDK22. And the review is called Just What I Need. As a specialized instructional facilitator, your podcasts always seem to come in a timely manner. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and resources. I have shared them with teachers, administrators, and parents. Woohoo! We love hearing things being shared with administrators. That's always yes. exciting. <laughs> so thank you so much from RJDK22. And uh, we are really loving seeing all the new reviews coming in for this podcast. So thank you so much. And be sure to leave one if this has made a positive impact on your life. And we will certainly be sure to read it in a future episode. All right, Casey Absolutely. is going to introduce our wonderful guest. Yes. Welcome, everybody. Um, today, we have a very special guest, Sydney Bassard. She is an SLP, and you can find her at the Listening SLP on Instagram and Facebook, uh, social media outlets. Um, but Sydney is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist. She received both her bachelor's of science in public health and her master's of speech pathology from the University of South Carolina. And she is licensed in Virginia, North Carolina, and Sydney serves children from birth to 18 and the adult hearing loss population. And her clinical focus areas have been working with students who are deaf and hard of hearing. And also she's branched into literacy and she really has a passion for providing high quality services and care for all. And she really is mindful about investing in her clients and the families that she works with. So we're really excited to have Sydney here today. And for me, one of the things that I've really enjoyed it when I get to speak with Sydney is that we can really see the link between speech and language and literacy, especially for the students who have dyslexia, who may struggle in learning to read and write. And so for me, I've always felt like dyslexia therapists and teachers and SLPs should be BFFs. So Sydney, I'm claiming you as my new BFF. So there we go. <laughs> Um, but I just really think there's like a great deal of overlap. And we look at that components of the Orrin Gillingham approach and reading and the current research surrounding the speech to print approach. So I'm just so excited to have Sydney here with us today. So welcome Sydney to the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here. All right. So, uh, 
I just have a great deal of respect for SLPs. Just want to put that out there. I learn so much from them, even personal level for my own daughter, who we had some wonderful services from an SLP early on in her preschool years. So I'm just really, really feeling so fortunate and, and grateful to have Sydney with us today. So Sydney, we're going to jump right in. So we know SLPs wear many hats um, when it comes to intervention. So when we're working with children and they may present to someone with dyslexia, what would you find would be your top goals as an SLP? And tell us some of the things that you work on with them specifically. That is an excellent question. So as you said, like SLPs wear so many hats, so many hats. And one of the really cool things about getting trained as a speech language pathologist is you learn a lot about phonology and speech sounds. And so one of the first things that I think SLPs are um, really good at being trained in is phonological awareness skills and those early phonemic awareness skills, targeting those with kids within therapy and learning how to target them kind of naturally without it being just this like very structured task. But generally with most kids that you work with on articulation or speech sound production, you might be doing some of these same type of activities within books that you're reading, within games that you're playing, um, really honing in on that skill is, as we know, it's foundational with reading. So it's a good thing that SLPs can already go ahead and start doing that. Um, and it's supported by what research is showing too. Like we, a research study came out in 2020 um, by Far Carson and colleagues, and it basically found that 25% of children with speech sound disorders at the elementary school level were also having difficulty with reading uh, in some degree. And so we know that there is that link between those two things. So being able to intervene early is always a great thing. And then the really cool was not an SLP. I actually worked for a reading intervention company during my summers of undergrad before deciding to get my master's in speech pathology. So my interest in literacy was actually there long before my interest in hearing loss <laughs> and working with kids in that capacity. So I have been trained in different programs and approaches. And so I love starting from that low level with just those phonological awareness, phonemic awareness skills, but then working all the way up to writing and mm -hmm. going from, you know, decoding words, spelling words, comprehension of what we're reading, and then putting it back into written text and what that looks like, text types. My philosophy in therapy is it needs to be functional and the family and client determines that. So I've worked with little kids that we are, you know, doing more traditional what we see of for therapy when working with dyslexic children. But mm -hmm. then I've also worked with teenagers and that looks completely different. Most times it involves some level of writing um, because that's where the parents are normally seeing the breakdown, even if there is some decoding difficulties as well. And like we've worked on writing text messages. What does that look like? What compensatory strategies or uh, technology we can use to assist with that or writing social media captions, the importance of spelling and grammar and how if you write things one way that can convey a completely different meaning for what you're trying to say. So we just keep it very light in my therapy room, uh, but we try to really bring things in to make it the best experience for these clients and families. 
I love that. I just want to speak to what you were saying with working with high schoolers, because Mm -hmm. I had recently read a parent that was showing concern because her son wanted to send text messages to a girl he, you know, was building a relationship with, but the girl was, I think, put off by so many errors in his text messages. And so the communication wasn't there and he was feeling really embarrassed. So I just, when you mentioned how we keep things really functional, that is just so, so important at all ages and stages. So that was just a connection I made with what you said, just working on text messaging and things like that. Yeah. Just like the everyday things that we sort of take for granted. Yeah. Those are important to include in therapy rooms. Um, I've helped kids write emails and things like that to their teachers versus their friends. And so I love that you do that as well. Like I said, I think there's so much crossover between the work that we, we do. I just love that. And so, you know, we, when we're thinking about dyslexia, I Sometimes there's like some confusion that occurs when we are talking about diagnosing. Um, And so would you mind speaking a little bit to the process and who can actually provide families with the diagnosis? Yeah, there's so much confusion about that. And it can be really, I think, difficult for families to navigate, especially because we know in the age of social media, there are wonderful groups out there of support. But when you throw a question out there, you might get a ton of answers back. So when I think about diagnosing, I think of what are you really looking for and what are you trying to accomplish with a diagnosis um, or an evaluation set? So you have neuropsychologists that can diagnose dyslexia and they don't generally look at just the reading portion, but it's a real full workup of the child looking at all aspects and domains of development to really see how they're doing kind of across multiple different things. You can also go to a SLP. I do say that with the understanding that within certain settings, SLPs don't have that privilege. So generally within schools, SLPs are not going to be uh, permitted to diagnose dyslexia. Uh, So when you're looking into potentially having an SLP do that, you want to make sure that that person has training um, in dyslexia intervention and assessments to really make sure that you're getting the best out of that experience. A lot of people in private practice that have training are able to do that. And so with my evaluations, generally it might come after a neuropsych or psych ed has been done, and it might supplement what's already been done. Or if the family is hitting me as the first stop, it might be the catalyst for them to go on and look a little further is where we are too. And also educational diagnosticians can qualify students or diagnose students. If, and I think you spoke Sydney to the, to the main point, right. Is you want to seek someone who has knowledge in dyslexia, if you're going to go the route of doing testing. Right. Yeah, that's expensive. It, it is really very is. expensive. And I yeah. appreciate you giving the distinction. So an SLP and maybe in the public school setting, you're saying would not be the one that would be providing a diagnosis versus an SLP in a private practice, provided that they have specific training and um, are able to provide those assessments would be able to. That's the distinction. Yeah. I mean, I think just 
our field is so broad and SLPs work in so many different Mm -hmm. settings that uh, depending on the setting they're in, like some SLPs don't even work with literacy. And I always stress that to um, parents that I encounter because sometimes, you know, parents and kids um, that have had difficulty with reading have really been put through the ringer sometimes when it comes to education. And so they come and they see me and they're like, well, our school SLP didn't do X, Y, Z. And it's helping them to understand it's it's not that that person didn't want to. Sometimes it's really the system in which they're in that tells them like that's not within their scope per that job. And so just helping people to understand that there's flexibility in everything. And you might encounter one person that does this, that could totally be their specialty. And you might encounter another professional that they won't even touch that because that's not within uh, their scope of clinical competence. Yes. Right. Right. Really, really important. I know that question comes up so often. So I really appreciate you taking the time, I think, to thoroughly explain that. That was great. And I Uh, think that advice can go into, you know, anyone that you're working with in the literacy scope, right? You want to make absolutely you're, you're kind of making sure you're connecting with those people who hold that knowledge that you're that you're seeking. So and so Sydney, I know you and I have, have talked a little bit about your personal connection to dyslexia and literacy. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share with our, with our listeners, your journey into bridging speech and literacy. Yeah. So, um, people that follow me on social media probably know, but my brother, uh, who is about eight years younger than me, he is dyslexic. And so he was actually late diagnosed. He did not get a formal diagnosis of dyslexia until he was in the sixth grade. And so prior to that, it was a lot of late nights doing homework um, with our parents and a lot of frustration on his end, you know, got labeled as lazy, deemed sometimes to be a little problematic. And it was very frustrating of a journey for him. And as a family, it was tough to see him struggle. So that happened when he was in sixth grade and I was, oh, I hate to admit this, but I was like a sophomore, (laughs) (laughs) I was going into my sophomore year of undergrad. So we do have a nice age difference. Um, And at the time I was going to be a pharmacist and just did not really gel with some of those hard science classes. But I liked seeing the progress that he was making and how excited he kind of was. So I ended up getting a job at the reading center that he got received um, instruction at and loved it. I knew that I wanted to be able to still have some control. So that's how I ended up deciding to go on further to be an SLP. It didn't require me to start all over undergrad again to be going back to being (laughs) a teacher. And so that's just kind of how I ended up in this space all thanks to my younger brother. Yeah. I thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that is a common thread, right? We all have something that kind of was that trajectory into why we are here working with these amazing students. So I thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure you probably, you and your parents probably saw the negative self-talk starting to sink in for your brother as, as you were nearing closer to sixth grade, we talk Mm -hmm. about that quite a bit as some of the negative effects of someone who maybe have gone undiagnosed just in school just seems so, so hard. Did you see that in him? Yeah. I mean, I think with him, he is so like smart. I mean, 
Like, he'll be like, you're smart. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you're smarter than I am. And so he was able, like a lot of our kids are, to figure out workarounds to make things easier. So I think there was the frustration, but it was also I'm able to maneuver things to be the easiest for me, even if it's not necessarily right. And that's background knowledge. That's where that kicks in. And that's sometimes too why I think we see a lot of kids that are able to skate and coast by because they have those other skills that are overcompensating for where they have those weaknesses at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So true. So (laughs) true. All right. So let's backtrack a little bit to early intervention. We all know in the education world, the importance of early intervention, early identification. What are some of the red flags that you see from an SLP standpoint for someone, maybe, you know, somebody in preschool that may present as having those red flags, you know, things we should be seeing as warnings to possibly see dyslexia down the road? Yeah. So going back to that articulation, Mm. that's probably going to be a big indicator. Uh, Then as we start getting into like letter name knowledge, the ability to do it pretty automatically, you know, after kids have had some direct explicit instruction in alphabet knowledge, we would expect that, you know, they are going to have some errors here or there, but for the most part, they're able to do it pretty quickly. It's not taking them a long time to generate. When we see kids that have difficulty with that, kids that have difficulty with language, oral language skills in general, and then holding on to longer pieces of information. I find kids that have difficulty with manipulation of sound, being able to follow multi-step directions, being able to hold on to longer words or repeat things back, tend to um, have some characteristics later on of dyslexia. Okay. Those are yeah. Those are a couple of pieces you mentioned, like the long holding on longer pieces of information, multi-step directions, mm-hmm. and that may so some issues like with working memory. We start to see, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think this is another reason why I always say that you know we should be BFFs with, with the SLPs because mm-hmm. those are the kiddos that usually come through my doors. I so Sydney had shared that article, you know, that twenty five percent of those students have that overlap. And we do see that often when I'm looking through reports, you know, the students that come through my doors, they receive speech services early on. And so there were early indicators. So I think that that's something to, you know, if you're in a position where you can have a conversation with the SLP, they're on your campus or in your area that, that you're working with in the literacy component to just kind of see where, what they're seeing. And, and if there's some overlap with those skills, what are some of the common misconceptions when people think about SLPs? I mean, as we said earlier, you wear so many hats, but some of the common misconceptions you have when you have to discuss with others, like what exactly SLPs do and what they think of versus what you actually do. You know, do you find that there is a disconnect? Oh, oh, absolutely. (laughs) Huge disconnect. Yeah. Um, And then the more that you specialize, the more people are like, I have no idea what you're doing. Okay. Uh, So the first big myth, I think, is that people just think that we work in schools and that we work with uh, kids on their R's. Oh, so you help kids with how they say their sounds. And it's always specifically R. And it's like, <laughs> actually, I don't really do that at all. <laughs> I barely see those kids. Um, yeah. And so 
helping people to understand that like part of what we do is really in our title like yes speech is part of it but we're also language pathologists and so working a lot more with language and what that looks like I don't think people sometimes understand SLPs work with adults and work in medical settings before I opened my private practice like I used to work in an outpatient hospital (laughs) so very different than you know a typical setting that sometimes people think of automatically for SLPs so those are kind of the big ones it's just we work with kids and we just work on sounds and there is so much more that we do Absolutely. It's a very broad field, like you said earlier. Yeah. And I think I've seen, you know, as I've kind of started to dig more into SLP in the field that there are different, you know, from people that are working with the motor of the mouth versus the phonology versus articulation. There's just so many different pieces that you could go into with SLPs. I think it just must be so interesting to know that you can work with such with so many different ages of what you see presented with you know, babies, toddlers, preschoolers versus adults, as you said, in hospital settings, just being able to see the full range, I think is just incredible. And yeah, I, I mean, I, and we in the Orton Gillingham world, you know, we're able to work with all ages as well. I think there's some misconceptions about what we do, just a few, right, Casey? we do more than phonics everybody (laughs) yes all right Casey what we have here so if we are thinking about you know accommodations do you find that there are any that you that are most effective in terms of um, you know coming from the SLP lens that you do are there certain accommodations that you find to be ones that we should make sure are put into place for students with dyslexia or who are struggling with language components? Yeah. So I think everyone talks about preferential seating and that's always a good a, a recommendation, but I always like caution people with that one about really get to know the classroom and the teacher in their teaching style, because that's going to look different for each person. So it's always a good thing to achieve or try to achieve, but figuring out what that really looks like within the classroom is always helpful. One that I love to recommend uh, that sometimes it gets funded and sometimes it doesn't is FM systems. We know that classrooms are noisy. There's a lot of background noise between kids talking, moving chairs, kids in the hallway, um, air conditioners in classrooms being really noisy and loud. So FM systems are a great recommendation because it's going to naturally boost and attenuate the sound of the teacher's voice. And the cool thing is they don't just, they have personal FM. So there are some kids that might like almost it wears like a hearing aid where they can put it in their ear and it's specific to them or their sound field FMs. And so that can be put in the classroom that benefits everybody in the classroom. Uh, So it's not just the child who has dyslexia or language disorders going on. My other accommodation is Simplifying the language that we use when giving instructions, sometimes it's hard and we get to moving and we say, you know, do do these five things. And then we have the kid that's sitting there with a blank look and 
you know, they might get in trouble because they haven't jumped Mm -hmm. to to do those things. So using short directions, I've also established with a lot of my clients that I see to develop a nonverbal communication signal between them and their teacher. So nobody, no kid wants to be singled out, right? Nobody wants to sit there and be the one constantly raising their hand saying, I didn't understand. I didn't hear it. So if you can develop a nonverbal cue, whether it's they put a certain pencil on their desk or they do something, some body movement, whatever it is to let the person know, like they need clarification on it. They need to hear it again. And then prompting kids to write everything down. If you are giving instructions, it's written on the board. It is not just oral and verbal. Mm -hmm. We know that our kids with dyslexia are going to have some difficulty with reading it, but having at least something as a point of reference, even if you pair the written with a picture symbol so -hmm. that they're able to follow along, it's better um, that way than, you know, it relieves some of the frustration I find on the part of the adult, because then you're not constantly feeling like I've repeated myself. I've repeated myself and you're still not getting it. It helps to keep everybody in sync on the same page. Absolutely. And then you're providing those tools for students to begin that self-monitoring and that self-advocacy work. So I love those. Those are great suggestions. Those are some really excellent suggestions for sure. I know teachers, I think it's frustrating to, as as an adult, to feel like, ah, to repeat myself again. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, but to think in, to be in the shoes of your students and put yourself in their place and realize that, yeah, you know what, maybe I do need to simplify my instructions or break things down, you know, maybe into just a couple of steps instead of five or six and providing those visuals with just short language with written directions on the board. Yeah. All those things I think were just so, so helpful. Absolutely. That's great. And then this is sort of connected to what we were just talking about with what you think are the most effective accommodations. So say we have a a classroom teacher with us and if you could speak to them and provide maybe any tips or the best tips for helping their students with dyslexia, what tips would you, would you give them? I think the biggest one is just meet the child where they are. It is so frustrating um, sometimes when, you know, you are responsible for 20 plus kids and you have this one that you feel like is just so behind and not meeting the marks that you know that they should, but just meeting them where they are in that moment and thinking and being like very intentional about teaching strategy when encountering that kid. Because sometimes, you know, I've done it as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. We just get into our mind and we just start doing things. And sometimes we might forget the emotional aspect of this. This is a really emotional journey for a lot of these kids. And so Mm -hmm. if they're being asked to read out loud in front of the group, if they're being, you know, constantly singled out, those things are um, emotionally taxing. It gives anxiety, especially if they are at a level of awareness up to the fact that they're having difficulty. So I think being mindful of this little person that's sitting in front of you and then learning from whoever your reading interventionist is on campus and learning some of the techniques that they are doing and using. The really cool thing about structured literacy and direct explicit instruction, it is beneficial 
for all children. It's yeah. not just beneficial for children with dyslexia. So incorporating those naturally into your lesson, everybody's going to benefit. And your special <laughs> friend that has dyslexia yes. is definitely going to benefit. Yes. <laughs> so true. And wow. I'm so grateful to all the educators in structured literacy out there that have mm -hmm. really said, listen, this is going to benefit so many more kids, not just your kiddos who have dyslexia. Absolutely. They'll greatly benefit, but everybody can. Absolutely. Such good advice for, for our classroom teachers. And Absolutely. then, and so do you have any favorite books uh, about dyslexia that you either share with the, your clients that you work with privately or the students or their families? So I'm trying any to resources? think, I don't think I have like any books that jump out to me. I do know Aaron Slater illustrator. When that came out, I pre-ordered it. That Yay! has been probably one <laughs> of my favorites. I feel like so many kids relate to, they might have the difficulty with reading, but then so talented with art yes. and illustrative work. Yes. And so that has the questionnaire series in general is a favorite, but mm -hmm. that one is a personal favorite of mine. And I think it just keeps the conversation very light while also like, you know, just demonstrating kind of the day-to-day -day interactions that children and family go through. Absolutely. So I like that one. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, that one's really good. And then I think as like a professional book that I really like, so there's several that are out there. I really like the Bringing Words to Life book about vocabulary mm -hmm. instruction, yeah. because I find that a one. lot of people struggle with well, what tier does this go in? You know, that's a question. Right. The tier, tell me the tier. And it's like, <laughs> guess what? It actually just depends on the kid. <laughs> it depends right. on their background knowledge. It, it depends does. on the area you live. What is a tier two in my area might be a tier three somewhere else. Just depends. So I yep. think that one does a really good job for SLPs and for classroom instruction mm -hmm. about breaking down what that looks like and yes. how we can become uh, better like critical thinkers about vocabulary instead of just wanting the answers just given to us. I think that book is so practical and so accessible. I've gone yeah. back to that for years now. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I just love mm -hmm. it. I love the questioning prompts to help them really, children learn how to really employ, get better use of these words and have open discussion and just sparking language. Such a good bark. Oh, I love it. It is. Um, it's a fabulous one. Yeah. Yeah. Any advice for parents or caregivers that you would give as we wrap yeah. up? So the thing that I always tell parents is it's okay to feel the feelings. Yeah. Like a lot of parents feel guilt about yeah. What whatever stage that their child kind of gets a diagnosis, there's some level of like guilt or association or how did I not know? Right. So feel your feelings. It's okay to feel those feelings. It's okay to release those feelings, but also know like you're you're doing the best that you can within your situation. So not being as hard on yourself, which is it's tough, but really just kind of being in that space and being in the present. And then when people are going and seeking out like OG tutoring or looking for extra services, I encourage parents to treat it as a job interview in a sense. Yep. Like you, when you are choosing a service provider for your child, you are making an investment in their future. And so 
you are going to always find the people that are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. They're going to give you the price that you want. They're going to tell you they use all these approaches. They're going to tell you they will do X, Y, Z, and your kid will make bleats and bounds and jump grade levels. And the reality is if you have a practitioner that's telling you that those are red flaggy type things, you might want to run because each child is an individual. And so what you want to know is ask the questions about how they're going to meet the needs of your child. It's great if they know an approach, it's great if they know a program, but do they know how to modify that program to your child's needs? Do they know how to engage and interact with your child? How have people felt about their services? Because even if you have a kid that's difficult and not making you know, the amount of progress you think, there's always some silver lining and when going on. And do we still make this child feel good and encouraged, even though the process is a little slower? So that's what I tell parents. Realize that even when looking at tutoring services, it's still a service and a business for people. And so you just want to vet the person to make sure that they are going to be the best fit for your child and your family. You have so many good pieces of advice there. And I think it's really okay with the family to know when or if the relationship just might not be there for the child and the tutor or interventionist practitioner, because sometimes that just doesn't happen and that's okay. So I think just being mindful, but upfront asking those important questions to really find out how are we going to make this individualized for my child to help them make progress. So, so important. I think you've had, you've given such good advice for families. So thank you for that. All right, Sydney, people want to find you and they'll find you. (laughs) How are they going to find you? (laughs) Tell us a little, you know, anything you want to share. How can we learn more about your work and what you do? Yeah, so if you follow me on all social media channels at The Listening SLP, I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, You can also go to my website, www.thelisteningslp.com, or you can email me at hello at thelisteningslp.com. I'm pretty accessible um, on all of those channels. I do run my private practice. I'm really excited because we just expanded to South Carolina. So we're now treating uh, clients in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and then I do professional consultation. So for people that are having those difficult cases and they just need somebody else to talk to and kind of come up with a game plan, um, I have that service as well. I was looking a little more carefully at your consulting side. So that's for families who really are trying to just get more information, what types of things do they seek when they maybe hire you as a consult? So I think it just depends. Sometimes it's families that are in that initial stage and they're not really sure where to go and how to really navigate the space. Uh, Sometimes I've had professionals that consult with me and they have kids that are a little bit more difficult or challenging for them on their caseload and they're not really sure where to go and how to move them to like that next stage that we're trying to get them to. So it just really kind of depends on what people are looking for, but I promise I am very transparent in my business. So if somebody ever comes to me with a question and I truly am like stumped and have no idea, um, I will always refer you to somebody Somebody that can appropriately assist you because 
I value people's time and money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, Sydney just said our, our, our famous line that we say for so many things, Casey, it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so much depends. Well, right. I think once you reach the therapy world, that is, that's the truth, right? Each, each child is, is unique and different. And so Sydney is a wealth of knowledge. Um, so yeah, please, if you don't follow her on social media, I, I highly recommend that you do and that you reach out to her for consulting services. She's fabulous. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Sydney, for spending some time with us today. So we'll segue over and Sydney, feel free to chime in here. If you, if you'd like, we have some suggestions, but we're just going to segue into a listener question. So Casey, I'll read this and then we can go through some of the things. So we had heard from this mom, believe about a couple of weeks back. So she had written, I follow your blog and your podcast. I work with high school students with learning disabilities, and I also have a son who is severely dyslexic. My son is now 11 and reading three grades below his peers. He has been receiving interventions since pre-K and was officially diagnosed with dyslexia this last school year. He has had countless hours of OG and Wilson instruction, but has made little progress. I was just wondering if you had any advice on where to go from here. It seems that the intervention both in and out of school has not been enough to help him and I'm at a loss this next steps to take. Are there just some students who don't make progress with OG? We have thought about private placement at a school for kids with dyslexia. However, each school that offers that is an hour away from where we live. Any advice you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. But we just so thank that parent for reaching out to us and honoring our, a chance for us to provide some insight. So yeah. thank you. Absolutely. And yeah, I wanted to thank um, you for the question and for sharing your, your story with us. Um, dyslexia is a journey and it does exist on a continuum. So we do have some students who may be severely blocked and who need additional pieces of support both in their lessons and then beyond. But I think a few things that we can consider when it comes to reading interventions and support for students with dyslexia is to, you know, really determine the specific areas of need and ensure that those receive that targeted focused instruction based on your neuropsych evaluation test. And then, you know, if you didn't have formal clinical testing done, I would recommend starting there so that we can really get a good picture of of the whole child to determine what specific areas are need. Because as Sydney so poignantly pointed out that, you know, each child's instruction should be tailored to meet their unique needs. Um, And so I, that would, for me, be a, a starting point. And then, if we're thinking about a student that's not making gains, you know, that we need then to kind of reflect on what we need to change because we do need to be seeing progress in our students. And and perhaps then we can ask questions about for the delivery of instruction, what is the training of the person that's delivering that instruction? Um, Is that training program specific or is it more, you know, did that person have, Training that includes a more comprehensive outlook on a student versus just a specific program, because we know that we need to tailor instruction to meet the needs of our students. And and that really brings us back to the testing and reflecting on why why a child isn't making the gains that they should be making. 
Right. Casey had raised a good point towards the end about tailoring the needs of instruction to the students. And there is a difference really, I think, between following a specific program versus the prescriptive and diagnostic nature mm -hmm. of Orton-Gillingham methodology. Yeah. And it behooves us, this is part of our training, to tailor and design lessons that are really, really targeted for these kids. So there can be, there will be a difference with following a prescriptive program that has been designed, you know, maybe for a whole school intervention model versus the specific tailored and prescriptive diagnostic. So I think there's, there could be some difference there to look at. And I can't stress enough that, you know, maybe we've had some testing that I don't know from this email, but the school testing versus perhaps digging a little more deeply and looking at a full neuropsych eval and mm -hmm. seeing what, what are the missing pieces to the puzzle here? Yeah. I think I had a different perspective on it. So okay. I 100% I agree with what both Emily and Casey said. Mm. I think the other thing we have to remember too is when kids have been continuously in any type of intervention approach, just like we as adults take vacation from our job, their brains, when they are working through these approaches, are being flooded with a lot of information. It's good information, but it's a lot. And so sometimes when I see kids that, you know, we consider hitting a plateau when they're not really going up, but they're just kind of coasting along, yeah. sometimes I do encourage families, like, I think it might be good if there's spring break or summer break to take a little bit of time off. Maybe it's not the whole summer, but it's a week here, a week there. Allow that kid's brain to breathe a little bit. I think as the practitioner too, it allows you to be a little bit more reflective. And both of those things can be true. You're not seeing mm -hmm. them every week. So you're able to think about where does this need to go in order for this to really be effective. And then for the kid, it's, I don't have to see Miss or Mr. So-and-so this week yeah. and I get to play <laughs> and relax. And so it's hard because families are like, well, we need to stay on it. That's a hundred percent true. But we also have to have that human balance of breaks are good for everybody. And right. sometimes we actually see kids that have hit these plateaus when they come back, really make these huge leaps. Their brain needed some time to absorb it all. Yeah, I think that's that, a great point. Yeah. Yes, because Sydney, you really addressed looking at the whole child here. And yes. I just really appreciate that about your, your reply. Sorry, Casey, go ahead. No, that's what I was going to say. I was going to add yeah. that. I think remembering that dyslexia is lifelong, it's a journey and it's not a marathon. And so I, I like Sydney, I'm very cautious. If I hear people say you'll make X amount of growth and X amount of lessons because yeah. that's that's perhaps not, not an understanding of what dyslexia actually is because you can't guarantee that and, and understanding that it is a journey. And because it's a journey, then yeah, giving a moment of breath, I have students who will take off the summer and it's a, okay, it's fine. So, so I think that it, we've, we've tried to sort of come at it from a couple of different angles here for this, for this parent. We so appreciate it that you've taken the time to reach out. We hope this has been helpful. It's given some food for thought. If you would like to reach out to Casey and I, um, we can do that. You can contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. And uh, we have some exciting episodes coming up. So please 
be sure to subscribe. And once again, uh, Sydney, thank you so much for joining yes. us. Uh, we so appreciate it. And we'll definitely be looking for you on social media and, and, um, and your website as well. And we'll see everybody next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.